Welcome to Close the Door and Come Here, a Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire podcast with heavy leanings towards our two favorite characters, Jamie and Brienne. everyone, I'm Guile, and I tweet at Door Podcast, and tonight I'm joined by Chicky. Hey, I am Chicky. I am at the Chikrin on Twitter. And Eon? Hey, this is Eon. I'm Eon Blue Negative on Tumblr. And Tina? Hi, I'm Tina, and you can find me on Tumblr at Cutie Pillar. And then two of our favorite occasional gents. We have Devin. Hi, this is Devin, GD Harper on Twitter. And Jake. I'm Jake, and I'm still anonymous. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we are continuing with our favorite chapter series tonight with John's 10th chapter from A Storm of Swords. And I believe, Chicky, that this was actually one of your picks. So um, oh, yeah. any, this is any me. reason why you chose this chapter? Um, I, I really like... I, re- I mean, I really love Stannis' entrance. I mean, that's about 80% of it, but of course I love John, and I'll sneak him anywhere anywhere I can on this podcast. It's tough. This is a particularly winning John chapter, I feel like. So um, so we start out with John's being lowered from the wall, and you know, from his descriptions, he kind of feels like he's being lowered into what I felt like was a bottomless pit of despair. Um, he, he literally refers to it as a bottle, bottomless pit. Um, he thinks about how, you know, bastards are said to be born of lust and lies. And he feels like he's going to be living up to the reputation for treachery because of, um, what he's being made to do. And there's, I like, there's many, so many reasons to love John in this chapter. Um, the first one for me was, you know, the next thing he thinks is, I should have stayed in that cave with Egret. If there is life beyond this one, he hoped to tell her that. She will claw my face the way the eagle did and curse me for a coward, but I'll tell her all the same. <laughs> like, oh, John. <laughs> He's so wonderful. Um, <laughs> and we find out that he'd spent ten, or excuse me, he'd spent four days in one of the ice cells, and they're five by five by five, so... He's unable to stand or stretch out, and he's basically slowly freezing and, and dying. Um, Kid Harrington would probably be fine, though. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like as a short person, I'm allowed to make Kid Harrington a short joke. Um, okay. Okay. I know. I'd fit in that cell just fine. <laughs> these uh, these have to be the worst cells in in the kingdom, right? Like, anywhere? Yeah. I feel like in the Seven Kingdoms, no, there's worse cells somewhere, I'm sure. I mean, what well, about I mean, those ones in uh, uh, the the Erie or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, See, I would rather, I'd rather be there. Really? Five by five. I mean, it you, sounds cold, so cold in this cold. thing. Oh. But that we got like the slanted floors where you're gonna like fall to your death at like any given time. I mean, I guess there's a view, but you know. <laughs> I think nice like, reason a view. You know, the, I would rather like, die go ahead. from jumping out of the sky cells than dive freezing i guess if i had to choose all right i feel like in the river in the river run dungeon though like i just think of like jamie with like the shit 
like coming towards him. <laughs> like at least in the sky cells, you could aim yourself a bit to have it go mm. down, and in the ice cells, it would just freeze it, and it'd the- be fine. <laughs> This is turning into like the most like morbid series of like Airbnb reviews or whatever. Like, <laughs> oh, I hate being cold, so I don't know. Maybe having a nice view is a better better idea. Well, yeah, because it sounds. I mean, the worst part of when you're cold is having to be like against a cold surface, and that's all oh, that he's yeah. got. And it's like it sounds like a. I don't. I really don't know how he's alive. And you can't yeah. get comfortable. That's that's the other thing. Like at least in the Scottsdale, you can just you know you can lie down or whatever. But here you can't do either stand or sit or whatever. It sounds like yeah. he I guess have his furs though, because I if um, Jano Slint ref- kind of mentions like we'll take away your cloaks next time. I guess, I guess I haven't thought about this cell as much because it almost feels like a passing thing where it's like oh yeah it's really tiny and cold you know, whereas some of the other cells they paint like a bigger picture you know what I mean. I mean, Hello. you know, George moved to Santa Fe. Like, I know it gets cold-ish in the winter, but I feel like he doesn't understand cold. He <laughs> what, does he, what does he know of the cold and his flowery seat in the south? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I, well, and it's like there's a there's the cold of the wilderness that is a a different beast that I think George maybe is not as familiar with. Yeah, and I mean, I'm just going to say, where I live, we're going to reach a high temperature of minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit on Wednesday. High. So. (laughs) Yeah, no thanks. So, yeah, so ice cells sound like, well, it might be kind of nice. You know, it could be like 30 in the ice cells. That would be an improvement. Um, Anyway, so Jano Slint. He's basically acting like he's large and in charge. And he tells John that Eamon says they can't hang him. And Eamon's defended John to Cotter, to, uh, Cotter Pike as a non-turn cloak, etc. And Slint is super dismissive of Eamon, but John has this nice line where he thinks of um, you know, Eamon Targaryen, a king's son and a king's brother and a king who might have been. And you know, thinking about the rest of this chapter... One thing that kind of struck me was the number of various kings that are really mentioned in this chapter. You know, we have kings or, you know, kings almost or kings to be, there's, you know. Even kings past. Get yeah, mentioned. kings past. Like, there's so many various kings mentioned in this. And it almost feels like part of this chapter is kind of an exhibit on, you know, the nature and virtue of kings, I feel like. And... You know, Eamon seems like he's sort of, in John's eyes at least, is kind of passing the test of someone that would have been worthy of, you know, of a kingship. Yeah, well, I kind of love, too, the the take on power that you're getting throughout this chapter. You know, it's like you've got Janice Lint, who's convinced that he has power he doesn't have and, you know, is is really lording the little bit of power that he does have over everyone around Mm -hmm. him and... And, and then you who see could that, have had power over everyone, you know, didn't do it. Right. And who does still have some power and mm-hmm. knows how to use it, you know? Yeah. No, good point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know on this read, I totally heard the Donald's voice in John O'Slint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, so, Slint and his new bestie, Alistair Thorne, 
tell John that Mance Raider wants to parley. And so they're going to send John as an envoy to him. And John's like, you know, what the fuck? Just because he rode with them doesn't mean they'll talk to him. You know, it, it makes it worse. But John, you know, they, they're threatening him with throwing him back in the cells. And John, know, John knows that he's trapped. He can't refuse without, you know, really appearing like a traitor. Um, but I liked, you know, we get this version of Book John where he keeps his sass, you know, even when everything else is lost. We have this, this nice little passage. Um, I'll go, he said in a clipped, curt voice. My lord, Janice Linton reminded him, you'll address me. I'll go, my lord, but you're making a mistake, my lord. You're sending the wrong man, my lord. Just the sight of me is going to anger Mance. My lord would have a better chance of reaching terms if he sent... Um, so I yeah, just, I love him yeah. for that. Like it's such a, you know, I actually don't really mind the show portrayal of John, but um, there are, you know, he is significantly less mopey. I feel like in the books. Um, and this is really a nice little, a nice well, little snippet of that. He also says my Lord, whereas like, you know, which shows he's actually a little bit like, you know, more proper Better breeding, born, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. yeah. Cause isn't Jano Slint a butcher son or a former butcher? Something like that. Yeah. I, yeah. Ty, Tywin says something to that effect, but he might have been exaggerating. I don't know. <laughs> Tywin, he probably was. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they actually inform John that they're not sending him to talk to Mans. They're sending him to, to kill him. And John thinks it's all pretty hopeless. And you know, as he's as he's heading, we get back to John in the present at this point. And as he's heading down to beyond the wall, he thinks, you know, it's pretty hopeless. And But he thinks also, the way he gets through it is he thinks, our honor means no more than our lives so long as the realm is safe. Corn Halfhand had said in the, in the Frost Fangs, he must remember that. And I really, like, I really liked this part of the chapter because it felt like George was coming back to this idea of, um, of what's more important than honor. And, you know, John's thoughts here are so close, I feel like, to Jamie. You know, they they prioritize the realm. Um, you know, we saw Ned prioritize his family. We saw Rob choosing the honor of someone else over his own. And, you know, we see Edmure Tully choose his people over his honor. And, you know, I was thinking about Edmure, actually, and, you know, thinking about the Tully words and family duty honor, and it's like, they're actually listed in priority order, I feel like. Um, you know, any, am I over-reading that, or? No, it's no, pretty I consistent. I, mean. and were there, I was trying to think of other examples of, um, you know, I feel like when we see this over and over again, we're kind of being told that this is, you know, this is the right way to do it. And I, I was trying to think of additional um, additional instances of it. Um yeah, I guess Loris choosing, although, I mean, I don't think Loris necessarily had to act against his honor, but, um, you know, we, we see kind of the heroes or the good guys as they are of the story kind of choosing something that uh, something bigger than honor. Well, like Ned choosing Sansa's life rather right. than right. the right, the technical right thing, honorable thing. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, I assume we'll see it from Brienne, you know, someday, never. Sure, um, <laughs> sure, we'll see it. <laughs> so shortly after he, John's beyond the wall, he's greeted by a rider, 
and it's Tormund Giantsbane. Described here as a, quote, short and broad with gold rings glinting on thick arms and a white beard spreading out across his massive chest. So I just wanted to throw that in there for any show fans who might be thinking, <laughs> thinking things. Yeah, um, I think I think uh, show fans don't understand that, like, Book Tormund is like this lovable grandpa type figure. Yes. Deadly, but lovable. <laughs> yep. Yeah, he's very he's very cartoonish, but in, like, the best way. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, like I almost picture I picture him in my mind as like drawn almost like a World of Warcraft character. You know what I mean? Like I was, a, almost yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I picture him as um, oh, there's a Bugs Bunny guy. Actually, no, it's not Bugs Bunny. Who's the who's the like the guy in Rudolph Cornelius or something? Yukon Cornelius. Yes, he's Yukon yeah. Cornelius. That's how I picture him. <laughs> so you picture him as like a wood stop motion puppet? Yes, that's exactly how I picture him. That's hilarious. <laughs> sort of gliding on the snow. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, they they kind of have this nice chat as they're walking towards the... Well, John is walking and Tormund's riding very slowly as they walk towards the wildling camp and they reminisce about the battle and they raise a toast together to Donald Noy and, and Meg the mighty. And again to Egret and Tormund fills him in on his latest family news, which is that his daughter Munda has been stolen by Longspear Reich, but um, everyone's apparently fairly happy with it because Longspear isn't just a name. Um <laughs> And then there's this other, this quick little sentence from John that I I, I liked. Um, John had to laugh. Even now, even here, he could have been fond of Longspear Reich. He hoped he found some joy with Tormund's Munda. Someone needed to find some joy somewhere. And, you know, unfortunately, John, John is miserable about how this all is going down. And there's an, another passage that I, I like. Um you know nothing, Jon Snow, Egret would have told him. I know that I'm going to die, he thought. I know that much, at least. All men die, you could almost hear her say. And women, too, and every beast that flies or swims or runs. It's not when a dying that matters, it's the how of it, Jon Snow. Easy for you to say, he thought back. You died brave in battle, storming the castle of a foe. I'm going to die a turncloak and a killer. Nor would his death be quick unless it came on the end of Mance's sword. And it's, you know, Egret really, like, these first few chapters after she dies, like, she really lives in, his, she really lives in his story, like, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in, in his realistic. head? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's not some, yeah, it's hard for me to, like, let go of that as a reader. You know, I, I it feels weird Obviously, I think the show's relationships for John is probably what's going to happen, but um, it's hard for me to let go of this relationship because I really liked it. Yeah. It was, like, like, so sweet. Well, and he's, you know, like, he really admires her. You know, maybe that's what it is. Like, he really genuinely, like, really admires her. And, I, you know, that's pretty appealing. Yeah, well, she has a completely, like, different perspective on the world that he's never really, like, encountered before, you know. He, 
Yeah, I mean, I could see how that would kind of flip his perspective, and especially like the same person who presented him with this completely different outlook was also somebody who was extremely emotionally intimate with, you know, like that's a hard thing to shake off. So uh, totally Jamie and Brian as well. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, so they reach the wildling camp, and it's pretty much the usual disorganized wildling mess. And a number of the wildlings stop to stare at John in his black cloak. And they head towards Mansa's white fur tent that's been raised on a spot of high ground. And Mansa's waiting outside for him with Harma Dog's head and Varamir six skins and his various enslaved animals. And um, both of them threaten John right away. But Tormund tells him to back off because um, John's just here to talk. And Varamir right away tells John that he's taken control of Orel's eagle. And so they know exactly how many men and supplies the um, Night's Watch doesn't have, basically. So, um, you know, Mance is kind of like, you know, you n- now you know what we know and you're fucked. <laughs> so, which is kind of, you know, nice of him in a way. Um, so Mance brings John inside his tent alone and we see uh, that his wife Dahlia, Dalla, Dalla? is pronounced her name a million different times. Um, she's starting her labor and she's attended by her beautiful sister Val. And, you know, John's like, really, really, I'm supposed to murder him in front of his wife who's giving birth and his sister-in-law. Like, come on. Um, John's like super not into this whole murder him plan. And, you know, he's thinking about it. And then he notices a big black horn and Mance has been watching his gaze and, and verifies that, yep, that is the um, the fabled horn of winter. I love how he doesn't even try to hide it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, John is, wonders why. If they had the horn, why didn't they use it? And, you know, Tala, in the middle of labor, you know, it's tells him that, you know, the short road isn't actually the safest. And Mance talked about how he'd hoped that all of the various raids would have worked um, or that there was another way around the wall. But at this point, their losses are heavy and they're not interested in more blood. And he tells John that they haven't suffered so much from the Night's Watch as from the others. And, you know, that's the issue is that Mance knows that he can't stand against them. Um, he says, you know, this was, I thought, a good quote for, for Mance. Nor me. There is anger in that admission and bitterness too deep for words. Raymond Redbeard, Bale the Bard, Gendelin Gorn, the Horned Lord, they all came south to conquer but I've come with my tail between my legs to hide behind your wall. He touched the horn again. If I sound the horn of winter, the wall will fall, or so the songs would have me believe. There are those among my people who want nothing more. But once the wall has fallen, Dallas said, what will stop the others? Mance gave her a fond smile. It's a wise woman I've found, a true queen. He turned back to John. Go back and tell them to open their gate and let us pass. If they do, I will give them the horn, and the wall will stand until the end of days. And, you know, John thinks about what chaos the wildlings would bring south of the wall. And then he asks Mance if he's a true king. And I think here we get to, like, the central, kind of the central contrast and the central part of this chapter. And Mance says, I've never had a crown on my head or sat my arse on a bloody throne, if that's what you're asking. Mance replied, My birth is as low as a man's can get. No septons ever smeared my head with oils. 
I don't own any castles, and my queen wears furs and amber, not silk and sapphires. I am my own champion, my own fool, and my own harpist. You don't become the king beyond the wall because your father was. The free folk won't follow a name, and they don't care which brother was born first. They follow fighters. When I left the Shadow Tower, there are five men making noises about how they might be the stuff of kings. Tormund was one, the Magnar the other. The other three I slew when they made it plain they'd sooner fight than follow. You can kill your enemies, John said bluntly, but can you rule your friends? If we let you, if we let your people pass, are you strong enough to make them keep the king's peace and obey the laws? And, you know, Mansa's response, and, and I think we should talk about his response, he says, Whose laws? The laws of Winterfell and King's Landing? Mans laughed. When we want laws, we'll make our own. You can keep your king's justice, too, and your king's taxes. I'm offering you the horn, not our freedom. We will not kneel to you. Um, so, you know, in my notes, I kind of I kind of put, I think, you know, John is testing them to see, you know, are, are you a worthy king? And as much as I love Mance, I think this is the moment that he fails. Um... You know, he gives, well, I mean, the, yeah. Go ahead. As you say, this is just kind of like a standard political problem of organizing and mobilizing a nomadic people. You know, you see the sort of step version of this in the, the Dothraki. Uh, you know, and you see it in history where it usually takes one kind of strong, charismatic leader to unite this sort of uh, de, this uh, very divisive, very scattered very diverse sets of nomadic peoples into one big fighting force. But as soon as that person dies or is killed or loses or whatever, uh, the whole thing falls apart, right? Like this entire thing by his own admission basically runs on Mance's charisma and personality and ability to kind of hurt all these cats. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's like, that. that's just kind of a structural problem. Like, you know, it's it, it's not like a moral failing or anything on Matt's, Mance's part. It's just that's the only way you can rule this kind of people, you know. Yeah, I didn't think of it as a moral failing on Mance's part, but I I feel like his speech is very much like it's very much like Varys's speech about Egan at the end of um, Dance. This whole idea of um, the whole idea of kind of rising from poor circumstances and, you know, earning earning the throne. But that doesn't necessarily make you a good... Like, just because you earned the throne through your own deeds, that doesn't necessarily make you a good king, right? Um, yeah, well, I, I think, you know, we get a lot of this in John's story. I mean, Danny has a lot of it, too, but... He he runs into people who kind of serve as examples for him of what to and what not to do with power and leadership and even as kings. I mean, in this chapter, you know, we have Stannis showing up and Stannis is going to be another kind of an example to John of what to do and not to do. And I think what you're seeing right now, the lesson that John will take from Mance is um, an inflexibility and an inability to reimagine the way that things have always been done can be your downfall. And that's, you know, uh, everything that Jake said is true too, but you know, I mean like it, this, this is also part of the problem with Mance is that, you know, he can't imagine that he could convince the wildlings to live in harmony 
you know, south of the wall. Yeah, and I think, you know, what if they did go south of the wall? Like, where's Mance in that situation? Because I feel like it's not like Mance, I think Mance would be like, I'd like to disappear to like a little, you know. Yeah, well, that's one of the cool things about Mance. Yeah, I mean, build a little place with Dallow and our kid and, you know, like. He's not, yeah, he's not doing it. You know. He's not doing it for his own glory, per se. I mean, I think he enjoys some aspects of the glory. He kind of seems to enjoy it. But that's really clearly not why he's doing it. I mean, his his motives are relatively altruistic. I mean, he just wants to save these people, you know? And yeah. he sees that this is the, the way, is to get them south of the wall. But it's like the one thing that he can't do, which is break tradition, which is the kneeling, um, is is the thing that will be the problem. And that will mean that he can't get it done. And this is what you see John, you know, really grapple with when you get to dance as, you know, John's like, we have to change some of the old ways of doing things. Does he do it? Well, no, because he's never seen it modeled, but you know, this is, this well, is mean, kind of, I mean, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, I don't know if it's because I watched the show first or if I've just kind of mentally checked out of this fandom lately, but I kind of forgot about the horn, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's, Honestly, honestly, that's like a his his deal here actually kind of makes a lot more sense, right? But the only problem is, you know, you have a bunch of people, you know, from the south and on the wall who probably wouldn't take like the Horn of Winter seriously, you know. But you know, he, like you see how serious he is in that he's like, look, if we just wanted to like go down there and spread mayhem and rape and pillage, like I could take this thing down right now. Like I'll give this to you if you just let us peacefully like pass through and and settle some you know what i mean like totally. it's it, it's a much it's a much more feasible plan i think that he actually has here kind of same thing with um with the king's mood and how there was the, the horn in that and it's like yeah that pitch made sense you know do you guys actually think is, you would oh sorry i was just gonna say point is the show needs more horns I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> no. Do you guys think that he would actually blow the horn? Because if he really believes that, like, the others are coming to get them, he knows that if he blows the horn, and if it really works, the wall's going to come down, that nothing's going to stop them. So, like, if they actually blew the horn, they would just basically have to, like, get away. They couldn't just, like, settle just on the other side of the wall. So I don't think he really would. I think he's bluffing. Oh, no, he never would. I mean, like, there's a reason that Mance is keeping this goddamn thing in his tent. You know, he, he doesn't trust because, anybody right, else I mean, with it. I wouldn't he doesn't trust, want it blown. Right. I wouldn't because trust somebody Egret else with it. Blown it. Yeah, Egret would have blown it in a second. Like, <laughs> you know, Tormund would, you know, a lot of these. Yeah, I think the last thing, that's the last thing Mance wants to do is blow the horn. Because, I mean, he's, you know, it's not like he's doesn't have plans for the future you know he's literally having a, a baby you know he's he's got stuff you know he's got stuff to do <laughs> i mean it's funny though like one of the things that's never brought up is any kind of like amnesty for his night's watch desertion or anything unless he just thinks it's like i'm so not following your laws like it's totally irrelevant which it is just, i'm sure it doesn't even matter yeah um i was thinking like I feel like Robert and Mance would be like really good friends. Like I just from the the aspect of like they're very much made out to be, you know, military leaders and stuff, but really like they would be much happier going to Bravos and hanging out as, you know, as um minstrel and and sellsword. <laughs> 
and just having, you know, having some good times, writing some songs. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, well, they're the same kind of leaders in that there's a certain kind of leadership that they want to do, and there's a lot of leadership they probably don't want to do. Yeah, I mean, then they definitely both have, you know, they both have a lot of charisma. Um, you know, Stan is painfully, is painfully aware. But I think, um, you know, kind of what you said about, um, you know, Mance's rigidity and, and not, not like looking towards a new, like kind of a, a new way of doing things. It, it got me thinking back to, you know, Asha again as one of those characters that, you know, absolutely does and is kind of willing to do that too. And, um, you know, I wonder if, it's, I wonder, you know, I kind of feel like she's not, like, I don't know that she and John will ever be officially alive at the same time, but it'd be interesting for them to meet um, <laughs> now, now that you're saying that. Like, because she would be like the person that would, you know, kind of share that with him or, you know, be an example of that potentially. But I just can't imagine them both being officially alive. And in the same place at the same time? Well, in the same place at the same time, I could see, but, you know, just the, the alive part troubles me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So, so John thinks there's no way that Thorne and Slint are going to listen, and Mance tells him if they refuse, Tormund's going to blow the Horn of Winter in, in three days. And I swear to God, like, that line, you know, Tormund will blow the horn in three days hence, like, how did that not close the chapter? Because... That's like the close of every chapter in these books is a line like that. But um, mm. his editors were still working at this yeah. point, Kyle. So, so in this case, um, you know, John John's mind is racing, and he immediately starts to think about if he could destroy the horn. But before he can give it, you know, more than a thought, they hear another horn, and John wonders if it's the others. But Mance tells him they only come when the sun is down, and they realize they're men in steel and black, and Mance accuses John of being in on a trap, and John denies it, and it's pretty obvious. It must be, like, pretty obvious he has no idea what's going on because everyone kind of drops it right away. Um, Mance, Tormund, and Harma prepare for battle, and they leave Varamir to keep an eye on Dala and John. And Varamir can see via the eagle that basically men are coming from everywhere, and the wildlings are, are freaking out. Um, Mance dons his Ravenwings helm, and I wonder, does anyone think that's significant, that it's Ravenwings? Like, are we supposed to think anything of that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's George, so probably. And his red and black, he has Ravenwings with a red... Oh, is this where the whole, like, Mance's Rhaegar thing came? Because he has a Ravenwings helm and a red and black cloak. Is it? I've never fully understood what no. that was based on, other than the fact that they both, like, sing. I don't know. Yeah, he sings, and he has a black and red cloak yes. and a, a raven, so he's like a Targaryen. I don't know. You could probably, probably spin, like, a 30-minute, like, a like, theory video out of this, just, like, slow panning over different pieces of fan art and asking leading questions. <laughs> yeah, there's something here. <laughs> We've all seen those. And then, like, his baby would actually be, you know, have, like, the Targaryen king's blood. Uh, great. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> um, I regret everything I've said. Um, so, Vance rides out to battle, and it's chaos. And it suddenly gets even worse, because the eagles hit, 
and Vermeer falls down and he's screaming on the ground and it kind of breaks his hold and I love it on this animals and the wolves immediately start fighting each other and the shadow cat just runs into the woods which is like the most dog and cat thing like that would ever happen (laughs) (laughs) I love that the cat just runs away um and it brings Val out of the tent wondering what the hell is happening and you know she's kind of panicking because they're under attack and um, Dalla's ready to give birth and she's kind of like prissy and gone with the wind at this point <laughs> and you know John tells her that she's the midwife now which like fuck you John <laughs> like at that moment like what um, so the yeah, I wish oh, I, I, sometimes I get so sad that Val wasn't in the show and I this know. is one of those times yeah I mean yeah it's yeah. I know they didn't have room. I know. I know. It sucks. I know. They have to make room for him to screw his aunt. I mean, it's really important to screw your aunts, apparently. Um, I mean, I, mean, I know George will do it too. But hopefully, in ten years, when Amazon owns everything, they can dump like five billion dollars into remaking this and just put every single thing in there. Or you know, the anime like, remake, the animated version. The oh, animated I would love. Version. I would love an anime. I would lose my yeah. shit if there was an anime remake of this. <laughs> Same. So the wildlings are, are done. They're completely breaking. And John hears trumpets. And, you know, he knows the wildlings don't have trumpets. So who the hell is this? And they have heavy horses, steel and surcoats, and it's an army. And he, he wonders who it is. And he has this wild minute where he thinks it's Rob, which is really sad. Um, oh. And as the men get closer and continue to overtake the wildlings, he starts searching for sigils. And he finally sees the royal standards, uh, largest sheets, and one has a flaming heart, and the other has a black stag prancing against a royal, a field of gold. And you know, again, he thinks, you know, shit, is this Robert? <laughs> like he's really, like, just grasping at straws here. And you know, which then Rob? He, uh, well, he thinks Rob, and then he thinks Robert, because when he sees the stag, right. it can only be Robert's attacking. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we get to the money, um, the money line of the chapter. And I kind of want everyone to maybe, maybe sing along, if you will, at the end of it. Uh, when the trumpets blew again and the knights charged, the name they cried was Stannis. Stannis! 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 That's what I thought. See, I thought if they did that, they would have a dash between the two ends. You're probably right. No, I mean, you're probably right, actually, now that I'm thinking of it. Okay, let me try again. When the trumpets blew again and the knights charged, the name they cried was Stannis! 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 I feel like maybe that works. Then they could, they could stop their feet twice and then clap. Yeah. <laughs> and then it turns into a knight's tail and it actually does have a happy ending. <laughs> and the chapter ends with um, John turn away, turned away and went inside the tent. So... Why is that John's reaction? <laughs> I don't I'm know. just thinking of an episode ended that way. Like, it's this big trumpet <laughs> moment. And the actor yeah. just, like, walks into the tent, and that's, like, the... Sorry. It should be, like, John shrugs and turns away or something. <laughs> right, and that's, like, why, you know, is it... 
I, I, no it's one like can he stand can't. Seriously. Well, I don't maybe, think maybe, he has any. Maybe of... it's just a moment where he's just like. Oh, shit is fucking crazy these days, you know what I mean? Like, fuck, you know, <laughs> like well, the coffee think, cup and the everything—it's it's fine. <laughs> I think he's probably experiencing, yeah. you know, some some sadness and regret for what just happened to the fucking free folk because he does care about them, and they just got obliterated basically in like the space of you know a few minutes. It it seems like I mean it just was over so fast and. You know, I think he he feels a lot of empathy for that. I, I'm wondering if that that's an aspect of it. It's just like he just doesn't want to see it, you know. I suppose in relief well, that he doesn't have to, you know, he's kind of off the hook. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is you know the most unexpected, unexpected salvation thing situation <laughs> for the Night's Watch. I mean, he could just be cold. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, you know, cold. it's. It's beautiful though. Like there, there's like a beautiful like last stand about what's going on. You hear the giants are fighting, you know, on their mammoths and stuff. And I mean, to me, I don't it know. just it felt like you know, it felt like um. Well, it know. seems like he end, likes to end these chapters on like the money line, mm-hmm. and like ta- John just going inside the tent isn't like the money line, you know. Like you said earlier, there was like the uh, I'm going to blow this thing in three days if blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Like that and the Stannis thing are the two money lines. Of, of the chapter, but the tent thing is a little yeah. I think that's a little weird. So maybe it is kind of the subversion of it though, because if you think of this as like, you know, the Native American, the Native Americans getting slaughtered in a battle, like you know, mm. in in the movies that he would have, you know, that George would have grown up on, that would have been like the triumphant climax of you know the the good guys winning, and you know, in the story he's telling, it's not. It's um. You know, our yeah. empathy for the most, you know, our empathy is really with with them and, and not with Stannis, even though, you know, Stannis is not a bad guy. It's just, right. too, you know, like, we don't really know anyone in Stannis's army. It's kind of interesting. Like, other than Davos, who's not there, mm-hmm. like, we don't really get to know any of them until, um, you know, kind of later on in Ash's chapters. And, you know, there, there aren't a lot of them that are very appealing. Like when Justin Mash yeah, is probably yeah. like our most interesting, or not even interesting, but just like the most sympathetic one. It's like, oh, there's some slim pickings in that crowd. Yeah. Well, he always he always got yeah he always got the short end of the stick, but you know, Stannis makes it work. I mean, actually, reading this kind of inspired me to read the next John chapter. And although this is kind of like like a dark note here at the end, like. One thing that kind of surprised me looking at that was just how ahead of the game Stannis is on everything at this point. Um, so it is like it, it is like triumphant, you know, if you sort of know where he's coming from. But you sort of find that out later, you know. Mm-hmm. But still, I, think I mean, I just, you know, you think of, you know, how many women and children were killed here. How many, you know. Yeah. I mean, he apparently he runs a tight ship, so there probably wasn't too much, like, pillaging and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like... I don't know, because doesn't, doesn't he like doesn't he geld rapers and shit yeah. like that? Yeah. yeah, and it was probably too cold to. <laughs> <laughs> but this is you know this is what George loves to do. He loves to not have a clean victory. He loves to make you feel for both sides um, in a battle. I mean, this is what he specializes yeah. in. Really, is you know going. Well, shit, this sucks, but it's also great. I mean, you know, it gets John out of a bind. I mean, John had no way out, and then all of a sudden, you know, hand of God Stannis comes in, and suddenly John's going to live. Hand of God Stannis. (laughs) Stannis and Manus. He'd love that. 
<laughs> you would. Um, did anyone on a somewhat Stannis note? So Stephen Delane is in this play in London that um, the someone posted a, I'm gonna someone posted a review of his performance in it, and there were some lines in it that were just I mean, again we're kind of like the most perfect things ever as far as an actor um, I'll find it as we're as we're continuing on um, does anyone have anything else on the chapter I mean I really like Chiggy I feel like this is a, a great choice I have to say <laughs> like there's just a lot um, you know like there's chapters that things happen and then there's I think chapters where we get to some of like the overarching themes in the book. And I think this is one that does both really, you know, we can oh, get totally everything. Agree. Like this yeah. is one of the key, like some of like, I think, you know, the whole idea of, of what it means to be a ruler. And then too the whole idea of, of, you know, what is honor and like, what is really important. Like those are such key parts of this chapter. And I think like key parts of, of the series. So this really seems like, um, Oh, I totally agree. And, you know, like, of course, the reader knows that Stannis is here because Stannis is choosing duty, you know? I mean, like, so it's just there's kind of layer upon layer Mm -hmm. of that, you know, honor, duty, and then what's right. I mean, it's a really, it is a really cool kind of nexus. Yeah. This is why we all love Storm, because there are moments like this. It's kind of Mm -hmm. funny that this doesn't end, you know, it's kind of funny that there's this slow kind of denouement of, of John's story in, in a storm of swords, you know, um, that we get those back to back, you know, we still have all those back to back John and Sam chapters after this before, you know, his story ends in the book. So, I mean, it ends with John as a leader, um, and not here where it seems like when you're reading the book for the first time, it seems like this is kind of where you would expect, um, the story to end. The book to end. Or the book to end, rather. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you mean. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the... You realize that, you know, I guess this is, you know, the last couple of chapters for John and coming into this chapter has just been... He just keeps running into this, you know, no-win situation after no-win situation, and that's just going to kind of continue to be his story from here on out, clearly. So, okay, here's a little short quote about this play that Stephen Delane is in, and just... Think of this in terms of Stannis and how perfect this is. Um, You know, Kate Blanchett's character's degradation would be nothing without Delane, who is so good that it made me want to turn around and ask someone else in the audience if we could even call this acting anymore. He treads such a fine line between so many different types of boredom, fury, and frustration. With Pamela, with the play they are performing, with the rest of the world, that at any moment it felt like he could demand the play end. At certain points, it seems he might. The sheer disdain that he can convey is quite startling to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, so it's not just Game of Thrones. That's like, it's everything. Well, it's like everybody says. I mean, like, when you find out how few notes um, D&D give to the actors on what their parts are supposed to be, it really is just the fact that Stephen Delane is Stannis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You read, you read any interviews with him, and you're immediately convinced, like, they didn't even give him a script. Like, he just showed up and ad-libbed all of that. Well, and then yeah. you That's have, just how he is. 
And then you have Liam Culling, Liam Cunningham, kind of raving about him, <laughs> like, "Oh my God!" They literally cast Davos, Davos, and Stannis, <laughs> Davos and Stannis. Like, it could not. Like, that's kind of the shame, you know. Like we talk about the animated version or the the Amazon version, you know. That's really the shame of it. That unfortunately, like, they really cast perfect people for some yeah. of these roles, and um, you know, what didn't, they didn't had to say, the only thing we were perfect is if. They- would be if they had to send Liam Cunningham to get Delane out of his trailer, you know, and like convince him to come act. Maybe they and, like, maybe his... this happened. Ian, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, do we have any mail? We do. Um, hey. We have yes, we have one one mail. <laughs> okay, we have so, two uh, mails. Wait. We do? But I'm bum no. I'm just making an occasional oh, gents joke. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, this one's from Katie Brown One. It says, Hi ladies, I'm from the UK and our increasingly dire political situation makes me look forward to your podcast even more. I'm a book reader and would love it if you continued with your analysis of book chapters rather than Game of Thrones. Fuck Game of Thrones and the upcoming season. Let me escape in the into the wonderful, unbastardized world that was created by George. I eagerly await your podcast every Monday. Please let next Monday be in a, be in a Song of Ice and Fire chapter. Lots of love, Katie. P.S. I was drunk when I wrote this, but the sentiment remains. <laughs> yeah. It's not just That's the booze great. talking. I, love it. I know. I know. I know, you know, whenever I find myself, you know, living in a world where entropy is taking over due to a massive climate change catastrophe while we're being ruled by incompetent and corrupt bickering elites, I like to escape into Westeros, you know, take my mind off my problems. (laughs) Yeah, there's no problems in Westeros. (laughs) Well, no, it's it's like, I mean, that's actually what I find so poignant, like about this series is that, you know, it's. It basically is about the world we live in, in a sense. You know, it is kind it really of about. Is, isn't it? it? It's about like the the political, the sort of problem of living in a society that's collapsing, and the structures of power have no way to really address the problem. You know, and everybody's and, worried about the wrong things. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, that's. I mean, that's. It really is kind of the. The fantasy novel that you would have to write about this in this era, about this era, you know, yeah. I think, yeah. which is probably probably why I keep coming back to it so much because you know it 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 poses questions of power and you know broader like systemic questions, but in a way that's you know very humanistic and uh, yeah, very very uh, it's a very rich and textured, um, and it's not like a straight metaphor either. Like it's it's very sophisticated. I don't know. Sorry. I'm a little, uh, I'm a little stoned. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's that's impaired. Here. That's an excuse. <laughs> yeah, that I, was a great email. Although, yeah. I, I mean, honestly, I'm really excited for this season of Game of Thrones. Not in a way that makes me want to talk about it on podcast, but I'm just excited to have some ending, just a way to close the door on this, this stuff. Finally, yeah. yep, same. Yeah, not get one otherwise. Nope. <laughs> I mean, I almost feel like Westeros is more... I feel more positive about the future of Westeros than I do about, um, you know, the future of America sometimes. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It, 
Yeah, I honestly understand what's going on more in Game of Thrones than I do in the real world. <laughs> it's just, yeah. I think after you, after you get get it kind of um, reconfirmed again and again that the worst instincts of people are actually like true way more than you ever wanted to think. <laughs> and I feel like with George, that's not you know it's not always the case or not even often the case like the worst instincts are sort of the exceptional people whereas most of the people in the story are not you know most of the people are not horrible or completely apathetic Mm -hmm. and you know that's probably saying more than we can at the moment which is really depressing well you get that you get that like in in like the entropy of like the first three books right where it's everything is going 100 percent the wrong way and all of you know, there's a, you. You as a reader are very clear, you know, from the very beginning that there's this particular th- like meta threat. Mm-hmm. But all the wrong people are winning, and all the wrong people are benefiting, and all the wrong wars are being fought, you know. And like it's in the story where it's at now, you can sort of start to see if you read between the lines, you can start to see the beginning of like the turn, perhaps. Um, but I think that's part of like the charge that the kick that you get out of reading this is, you know, sort of like observing the civilization that we live in. You see that so you've seen that like in the past few decades so much. You know, I feel like we're like living the, in a storm of swords for the last two years at least, where like <laughs> you know too much news. Like what it was the classic, you know. I hope you live in interesting times. Like ugh, I mean. For someone that yeah. never, you know, like, I really did not live in interesting times, and I understand that curse now. And boy, that's a really terrible curse. Like, I don't yeah. want to live in interesting times. I don't want to have conversations with people where we have wildly different opinions about the CNN primetime anchors, which we have developed because we watch it so much, you know? <laughs> and the correct yeah. order, of course, is Aaron Burnett, Don Lemon, Anderson Cooper, Chris Cuomo, Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> Just saying. Almost not at the bottom. No, I really, I, I really don't like Wolf Blitzer. See, this is where we disagree, guys. Okay. But I mean, it's funny. Most of the disagreement was in the placement of Don Lemon versus Anderson Cooper. Like that was where people <laughs> flip flopped. But almost everyone else had Aaron number one and and Wolf last. So it's like the Chris rankings. You know, it's of course Evans with a beard, Helmsworth, Pine, Pratt. <laughs> you can have it, you know. It, you can make your own, but that's the right order. <laughs> so. as, as long as Pratt's always last, doesn't really matter. I think you know. It used to be Pine was always last, but then Pratt's kind of turned into a Pratt, and so he's ran- yeah. started to rank lower. Is the problem? He's kind of clawing his way to the bottom. Yeah, he definitely is clawing his way to the bottom. So it's just, yeah, it's not as. Um, not as good for him as it used to be. So, anything else? Anyone wants to? Any other rants? I feel like. Imagine the mail a, we'll get from this episode. We're in a good know, place. Right? I feel like we're in a really good place for ranting. So, if anyone's got yeah. something, you know, <laughs> put it out there. <laughs> Nothing. Okay. okay uh, <laughs> well, uh, I am. I am going to close the door. Get out. 